What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1 where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. What is crack and Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you once more without my co-host Adam Frommel. Do have another backloaded pod for you today. We're going to be bringing in Ryan Toprek to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. He is a Bleacher Report quality editor, co-host of the NBA pod, and also writes for Forbes Sports and Fansided. Follow him on Twitter, at btoporek. That's at B-T-O-P-O-R-E-K. But before we talk to him, just our usual few housekeeping notes, we're also going to talk some NBA Finals and then some some Buddy Heald trade rumor-ish thingy-majiggies, whatever. I don't really know what to call them. Uh, please, though, as always, remember to subscribe to this podcast and download every episode wherever you are consuming your podcast. Whether or not you're using iTunes, we please, pretty please, plead, beg with you, just head over to iTunes, search us, Hardwood Knocks, throw us a five-star rating, write a review, that helps us out a ton as well, and you can follow us on social media, that also helps us out a ton as well, at Hardwood Knocks on Twitter, and then also our YouTube channel, go to youtube.com, search Hardwood Knocks, we are bound to come up, subscribe, like our videos, that, that would be appreciated too. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsors who make this podcast possible this week, DoorDash and BetOnline. You'll be hearing from them in just a few moments. Let's talk some finals, though, before we get into the Sixers, who there's there's some Sixers to talk. Let's just say that. Uh, so the the Lakers dropped Game 3, 115 to, to 104. There's a lot to talk about when looking at how poorly the Lakers handled this game, but I think this game needs to begin and end with Jimmy Butler going full supernova. And like that was the difference. He had a really good game too, but in game three, he scored 40 points, dropped 11 rebounds, dropped 13 assists, uh, played almost 45 minutes, went 14 of 20 from the floor, two steals, two blocks, did have five turnovers, but he was just an, an absolute monster. And look, it was an historical performance. Uh, he is just the third player in NBA Finals history per stat head to have a 40-point triple-double. The other two, Jerry West in 1969 and LeBron James in 2015. That's not bad company to be in. And also, this is per Mark J. Spears of the Undefeated, Jimmy Butler is the first player to outscore, out-rebound, and out-assist LeBron James in a Finals game. And that includes LeBron's teammates. That That is a wild stat to me, too. And then uh, you look at just 
what he meant to Miami's offense, even when he wasn't the one taking the shots. Like he put a lot of pressure on uh, the center of the Lakers defense, which also just wasn't that great. It felt like Anthony Davis at points was showing too much respect to Kelly Olynyk. I don't care really how good he's been in this series. Anyway, though, 18 of Miami's 34 field three point field goal attempts in game three were directly off passes from Jimmy Butler. And that's per Daryl Brockport, uh, Blackport, excuse me on Twitter. So this game, what it means moving forward, the Heat, I still wouldn't expect them to win this series, and I just think that's fair because um, both Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic didn't play in Game 3. You can kind of look at this victory as a, well, you know, if you're going to get some of them back, like that should make this a series, and it technically can. I'm far more hopeful that Bam Adebayo comes back than Dragic, and even if Dragic does come back, I wouldn't expect him to be that effective. If neither of them comes back, or if you get Bam out of bio back and he's just super limited, like this game was, it was a lot of Jimmy Butler. You had some, there were some big moments from, from Tyler Hero, hashtag stink face. They got another good game from, from Kelly Olenek, but this was just a lot of, of Jimmy Butler playing at an intergalactic level is the best way that, that I would call it. That's not necessarily sustainable, but I think, and I, the other thing that was bizarre to me in this, and I don't like boiling games down to just a lack of focus or whatever you want to call absence of a certain effort, not effort in general, but a certain effort. But the Lakers finished plus six um, from three point range over Miami. They once again uh, won the offensive rebounding battle 11 to three, and they were about dead even in free throws. Uh, They made 22 of 29 attempts. The heat made 21 of 23 attempts. And so the Lakers left some points on the board when it came to free throws. And look, they were in this game, despite they had 10 first quarter turnovers. That's something that you could absolutely point to as an issue. LeBron himself had eight turnovers in the game. This was probably one of his, you know, yes, he dropped 25, 10, and 8, but this was probably one of his worst playoff games that we've seen. So it's weird almost when you when you look at those numbers, like unless you're mega concerned that the Lakers were I don't even know how you could be concerned. They they were a, a plus one at the free throw line. Unless you expect them to win that battle by more, and that's how they're going to win games. Uh, this felt like a puzzling outcome almost, and almost just a, a, a victory of sheer will from Jimmy Butler. And because on most nights, if you say the Lakers won the offensive rebounding battle, the free throw battle, and the three-point battle, like you would assume that that's a victory. And the fact that it wasn't, it speaks definitely to their to their sloppy play. Anthony Davis got into some foul trouble uh, during the first half, which which did not help him. And then he just felt super passive. Nine shot attempts, only one shot attempt in the fourth quarter. This is per at half court hoops on Twitter. In the eighteen or so possessions that Anthony Davis was in during the fourth, he was only involved in five actions, and not a single play was run for him. He had two post ups, and then three where he set a ball screen. None with. LeBron being the ball handler in those situations. Again, that's per per half-court hoops on Twitter. Hashtag wow, that's definitely a problem. I think a lot of people have also pointed to if LeBron is going to spend so much time on Jimmy Butler, why are you going to so easily switch off of him Like when it's just not necessary? I agree with the overall stance. I don't know that it became like this massive problem until later in the game where it did feel like the Heat did a good job of targeting like getting they knew that the Lakers were going to switch so easily so they, they really went after uh, a Danny Green that knowing if he was going to be on the switch somebody's just not as strong as Butler ditto for for KCP uh, Markeith Morris even someone who yeah might have that girth but like Jimmy Butler is going to beat him particularly if you get him going downhill beforehand and so the Lakers are getting caught with like 
uh, their hand in their pants in that situation, essentially, is, is what it felt like. And it was weird because you look at the, the partial possessions that LeBron defended Butler on were 21.9 in Game 3. That's a team-leading 21.9. Um, and the Heat only scored 17 points as a team in those situations, which is under point seven eight points per possession, which is good overall. But because he's splitting so much time with other people, like a Markeith Morris, where Butler was three of seven with two assists against him, um, Kyle Kuzma, who had a great game, might have, I think you can argue, might have put up the most resistance against Jimmy Butler um, on defense at points then. Uh, Butler was one of three with zero assists against Kyle Kuzma. And again, this tracking data is imperfect, but uh, the ones I'm reading sort of match up with what I was watching during game three. Um, the When he went up against Contavious Caldwell-Pope, uh, two of two with one assist. So like those all become problems. And look, even against the Anthony Davis, this is the one that I'd like, if you're going to switch, like that you'd rather see Anthony Davis go after Jimmy Butler here. He was two of two against Anthony Davis with, with three assists. Uh, so, I would. Ex- I think that you need to kind of, if you're going to have LeBron on Butler, you need to do it in the same vein that you did against Denver, where he's just going to stick to Jamal Murray more. And if that's too much to ask, well, then it's time to explore something else. And that's probably where the main issue comes in, is who is the best body, aside from LeBron James, to throw at Jimmy Butler, let's say full-time or semi-full-time. It's not Marcus Morris, even though it feels like he has the build. I wouldn't trust Kyle Kuzma to do it even though he's been, he was solid defensively in game three, Danny Green would probably be your best option. And like, there's going to be a strength deficit there. And LeBron just might end up being your best option. So don't soft switch as much, I guess would be the recommendation. But again, I don't think that that was like the biggest deal in this. I understand the logic where if you're going to put LeBron on Butler, don't make it so easy for Butler to be able to get off of him. But something else that, you know, you look at was even particularly later in the game, like after you're making those switches, the lane is just so open because Anthony Davis didn't feel like he was anywhere near the basket, paying so much respect to Kentavia, uh, wow, to Kelly Olenek. And that's just, look, if Kelly Olenek's going to have a big game, like Kelly Olenek have a big game, I would think that you need to put up a lot more resistance at the rim. And yes, look at the beginning, if he's off the floor, if he's in foul trouble, this is Davis I'm talking about. I totally get it. But later in the game, like there was a, a possession where Jimmy Butler dribbled out of the corner after I think the Lakers switched on him twice. And there was just no one around the basket because Anthony Davis was like glued to Kelly Olenek. And I get the inclination where you don't want Kelly Olenek to, to hit a three when it was a relatively tight game at that point. Uh, still it's, it's Kelly Olenek and there should be like more help around the basket in those situations for LA Something else about the Lakers that was just off. So in the first two games of this series, they were shooting almost 64% in the restricted area and the paint overall. And then in this one, uh, they were just 54.8% on those looks in the paint and the restricted area. That's something that's going to need to to come up for them, particularly if they're going to, you know, Anthony Davis wasn't necessarily killing it on the offensive glass himself. But if you're going to commit so much to offensive rebound, or if you're going to be, again, plus eight, on the offensive glass, you're going to want more of those those bunnies to fall. And they were kind of, a lot of them just like random offensive rebounds where it's like Rondo catching one and then he's going to dribble it out, sort of the same thing with like a, a Kuzma. So I think it's probably more instructive. You look at it and you say, all right, well, Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard had two offensive rebounds apiece, which really isn't too much. Still, that's just, the number there is just wild to me. Uh, Lakers were also, so you win the three-point battle, but you go five of 21 on above the break threes. That's in 
I wouldn't say that's an unsustainably low number. They really they did their damage from the corners where they were nine of of twenty one, which is that's you know both of those feel sustainable. Where it's like on a LeBron James led team, yeah, you're going to see a lot of made corner three pointers. And then when you're looking at their shooters, yeah, there are going to be nights where they're just not going to have it going from above the break. And Danny Green dealing with an injury, we know, but in almost 17 minutes of action, and that's probably why he's not, maybe that's why he's not your best option to go up against Butler. 0 of 4 from 3, 0 of 6, and it just becomes you know almost untenable to to really keep him on the floor uh, if if he's not going to give you you know made shots on offense and then he's becoming, I don't want to say he's a defensive liability, but he might be there. And it, look, it, he becomes a liability in a sense if you can't have him go up against um, a Jimmy Butler, and then there's no Goran Dragic necessarily to worry about. That this is just a huge a punch back from the Heat. Like it's absolutely massive. And if they get Bam Adebayo back for Game Four, he said that he plans to play every single game since he was injured in Game One, dealing with a neck um, issue. I believe also had some shoulder stuff going on. And I believe his stance is he believes he's going to play in Game Four as well. If you get him back, um, the one thing perhaps that helps, even though he's not the greatest you know, uh, rebounder and he's not like this huge. Like you can, I don't want to say he's not a rim deterrent, but like you can score at the basket with Bam Adebayo on the floor. That's not really meant to be any disrespect. He's just going to be a better guy when it comes to switching on the outside. But if you get him back, it, it should in theory be able to, to limit the Lakers' opportunities on the offensive glass. And again, I think maybe you can argue that the Heat did that when you're looking at how their offensive rebounding um, was dispersed amongst the Lakers. Still, that should help there. And then just having sort of another offensive creator because the the half court offense you know entering this series without Dragic was absolutely terrible and because they played their half court offense was actually fairly efficient in game two without him and then you have Jimmy Butler going absolutely off in this one just a huge performance from him really putting pressure on the Lakers getting to the foul line just just doing everything didn't take a single three-pointer which is objectively amazing and I I think you can argue that Miami can even get better Tyler Hero, two of seven from three. Duncan Robinson, three of ten from three. And some of those were good looks, too, for him. And so I know he's been struggling in the finals, but if a few more of those looks go down, like maybe this isn't even a situation where the Heat uh, have to worry about entering a, a, cr- a crunch time, any crunch time minutes. Uh, they jump out to that. They let it 14 at one point. That was in the second half. And I think they they had a – I can't remember what exactly was in the first quarter at one point. Maybe it was 13 or something around there. But – with the Lakers having 10 turnovers and then you end the first quarter where Miami's only up three and then only up four at the half, like that was, that was sort of mind blowing too. And it was kind of a kudos to the Lakers. They've just been scalding hot from three point range in the first half specifically. Um, And so you can look at that for them and say, Oh, that's actually encouraging. They were so sloppy. They trailed by so much at the beginning, but they came back, they held a lead at one point in the, the second half, I think it was it was either at the beginning of the fourth quarter or sometime in the third quarter, they they like jumped out. It was tied at uh, 89, and then I think they went up 90-89 or something like that. Forgive me if I'm misspeaking there. This game just felt like it was absolutely all over the place. So, yes, that is encouraging for the Lakers, but the Heat like can also do some things a little bit better. And um, it, Butler, I think you can count on him to come with the same sort of effort. Let's see if he has as much energy after playing almost – 45 minutes so but if you have a bam out of bio like that's just who has been one of your top three players in basically every 
playoff series here. There's been a lot of talk about Dragic, so I hes- I'm hesitant to say that he's been their second best player at points, but he's had some big offensive performances. If you get him back and he's just a semblance of himself, like this becomes a real problem. And it may look, it should make life more difficult than Anthony Davis because with the way the Heat feel like they're defending, and if you want like serious X's and O's, this is I'm not the guy to go to. I've been very open about that on this podcast, but like they're going after LeBron a little bit more if he's like throwing more bodies at him. And maybe that's just going to make them more inclined to be like, hey, he wasn't the primary defender on Anthony Davis in game one where they did lean on a lot of zone. Uh, we're just going to make him that moving forward. And I think if you were going to design someone in a lab to guard Anthony Davis, just like you would Giannis Antetokounmpo, it would be Bam Adebayo. We'll, we'll see really how that goes. You, The Lakers have to get him more involved. And that falls on it falls on LeBron a little bit in the game. But also, if you're not running actions for Davis when LeBron is out of the game, like that's a huge issue as well. So those are those are all controllable things for the Lakers. But if you're trying to take the pro Miami stance here, which is what I think we need to do, because it's been very we've been very open and clear that this just feels like the Lakers series to lose after these injuries, after what we saw in Game One, even before the injuries from the Lakers, where they came back from that 13 point lead, they clearly feel feel like the superior team. But you look at Miami and you say they're going to get their second best defensive player back. I, I still think their best defensive player is probably Jimmy Butler. He's the dude is just a monster. But what you get Bam Adebayo back is just objectively huge, and maybe some of these guys are just going to start hitting more of their shots from downtown. Like these, this is now I think a two of the three games they've now lost the three point battle to the Lakers, which is just not like that's you to be only down two to one in this series, given the injuries and like not consistently winning the the three point battle where you were a plus, I mean, a minus in game two, they were a minus 15 from three. And then you look at game one, which feels like forever ago, um, the three point battle, I think it might've went to the Lakers as well. So you've lost the, the made threes battle in all three games thus far. Yeah. They were a minus 12 from three. So the Lakers have outscored you by 33 points from three-point range in this series, and you're only down 2-1. to one. That can be encouraging for them. If you think that uh, Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson are going to shoot better from distance, like that becomes a, a big deal. Hero now has performances of he was 2-8 of eight from three in game one, and you combine that with 2-7 of seven, uh, in game three, not so great. And then Duncan Robinson's been laying a lot of bricks in this series. So that's like, you can look at this now, and I feel like you can convince yourself there's a path to Miami winning. I still default to LeBron is not going to commit eight turnovers in every single game. The, the Lakers are not going to commit 10 turnovers in the first quarter. They'll figure out a way to get Anthony Davis more involved. And it's not even necessarily a matter of saying, well, Anthony Davis can just score at will, which at times it does feel like he can. But just having him more involved puts a different sort of pressure on the defense. Uh, and so I, I still think this feels like I picked the Lakers in six for the series as a reminder. I would still I would stick with that, particularly now that he took a game. I was more inclined to think this might be a, a gentleman sweep or or an actual sweep after the injuries. We have to see if Adebayo comes back and, and what he looks like once he does. But this definitely sets Miami up. I don't know if it necessarily gives them a blueprint to win by just saying Jimmy Butler needs to go supernova. But maybe it does give a blueprint where in the sense that if you have Jimmy Butler really attacking, which he, he was also doing in game two to his credit, particularly as the game moved on. But if you have Jimmy Butler attacking and you get Bam Adebayo back and you hit just a few more three-pointers and you can play the Lakers to at least a dead even like they sort of did in game three at the free throw line, it feels like there's a path to them winning this series now. Like that's how big game three was. You don't want to overreact to it for either side. And I don't think this is the type of game where it shifts perception of the entire series unless you just thought that the Lakers were going to steamroll them in in four games, obviously. Still, it, it gives that 
it gives the Heat like that semblance of hope because like this is doable. This is probably the the toughest game you play because it's yes, you it, you lost under the same circumstances in game two, but in game three, it's like all right, I'm not a big must-win guy, but if you lose, you're down 3-0 and the series is just over. And then you're still dealing with these absences where maybe you thought it was only going to be at a bio out of game. And so now it's a matter of, well, we don't really know if we have a light at the end of the tunnel there. This was the hardest game for them to win. And, and to their credit, they absolutely won it. And look, for the Lakers' turnovers, um, they finished with 19 on the uh, on the game after committing 10 in the first quarter. Like You have to uh, compliment Miami's defense for the, the pressure that they were putting on the Lakers. LeBron made some super questionable decisions. And I think you can even argue, you know, Miami scored 11 points off 10 turnovers in uh, that first quarter. You could probably argue that they probably should have scored more than that. Um, but credit to their defense for putting a ton of pressure on on the ball and forcing the Lakers into some of those mistakes. But it, a lot of them felt like they could be cleaned up, just like LeBron just not making the, the right reads and throwing a couple bad passes. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. I can confirm this. I've been using DoorDash quite frequently throughout this pandemic that we're all trying to survive mostly whenever i've just been jonesing for some wings could be the middle of the week could be looking for a cheat night i just i need my wings sometimes large orders i'm talking like 50 wings or or more uh and i can eat those pretty much in in one sitting so doordash has been great whether i need uh, contactless delivery or even if i'm just placing a pickup order they make that super easy as well just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. But also, many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. That's what I've been doing, uh, using all these local, smaller businesses to, to get my chicken wing fix. DoorDash has them all. Love that, that they're all just located on there. And right now, get this, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Moving on, uh, this dovetails, I guess, sort of, with the Sixers conversation we're about to have, but per Jason Jones of The Athletic, uh, Buddy Heald, is has soured on Luke Walton. Uh, he's probably not alone, would be my guess, uh, to the point where he's not returning Luke Walton's phone calls. Um, the Athletics' Jason Jones also notes, though, that the, the Kings aren't going to rush into a decision to move him. And we'll talk about some trade partners here, but they just signed Buddy Heal to a four-year, $106 million extension before the start of this past season. Uh, it's basically a $94 million extension because $12 million of that is uh, in unlikely incentives. So you sign him to that deal and you can make a clear case that, yeah, just move him because you have to max out De'Aaron Fox. Rich on Holmes is going to enter free agency in 2021. You've already paid Harrison Barnes. Um, you're going to have to pay Bogdan Badanovich this summer. And so the, this team is going to get expensive quickly, which is not great when you're not, I won't even, not just a, not a bona fide playoff team, but like you're not even guaranteed to finish top 11 in the Western Conference right now. So there would be some merits to moving him, particularly if you want to pay uh, to keep Bogdanovich. That being said, it's kind of hard to find like Buddy Heald trade partners because I don't think he provides enough. He's he's a fantastic shooter. 
I don't know how he would feel about coming off the bench somewhere else as opposed to Sacramento because it does seem like maybe that might be his best role, but he wasn't too happy with it. You put him on a better team, maybe that's different. But I'm just not sure. Like, the defense is – I he's not a great defender. I don't really know what else to say on that. But he, I don't know if he's going to provide you with enough, like, self-creation to actually be worth this contract or guarantee it. Like, you need someone who could maybe do a little bit more off the dribble. And I know the Kings tried to put him in – more pick and roll situations last year and it just didn't really end that well and it felt like that was sort of a, a harping point for uh, their fans especially at the beginning of the year was trying to make buddy heel do too much of the ball in his hands still you know shooting really plays and and buddy heel dysfunctional shooting like he can fire shots up off the dribble he can it's not just stand still looks that he's hitting he can score them off in motion and there are a ton of teams where it feels like he would be event like a fantastic fit, but who's really, you know, you have to give up stuff to get him just because you're looking at what he's making right now. And the Kings clearly value him to that degree, even if they now think that they overpaid, given that this is a, a new front office regime that's in charge. The Sixers, who we'll talk about, and we mentioned Buddy Heald within the podcast while speaking with Brian, they seem like the the, the most popular trade partner. But like, you know, who, the Al Horford for Buddy Heald swap, like it's just not happening on its own. Al Horford is owed three years and $81 million, um, 69 of which is guaranteed. So you can look at it as a two-year deal, but like paying him $13.5 million to go away in year three is not nothing. Uh, just want to, in case anyone was wondering that. So what are you putting in as a sweetener? Is Thibel and a first enough? You know, Thibel and number 21 without Horford? I would almost hazard no. And now you're getting into the point where, well, can you use um, Zaire Smith? Like, does he even count as a sweetener at this point? Are you willing to include Shake Milton? Um, I I don't know that I would go Shake Milton, Thibel, and a first. I might, if I'm the Sixers, be more inclined to go number 21, a 2022 pick, and then Thibel or Milton um, for Buddy Heal. if I'm also getting rid of Al Horford's money. Maybe the Kings are a team that could talk themselves into Tobias Harris, but it feels a little bit redundant when they have Harrison Barnes, who's a better defender, and Harris is the better scorer, but like both those guys feel like they're best suited or should at least play a ton of their minutes at the four, and at least Horford, I think you can look at up front and say that the Kings really could use a center. Holmes is good, not a defensive anchor, and also headed for free agency in 2021. You don't really know what Marvin Bagley is. After declining Harry Giles' team option, uh, his fourth-year option, he might leave this summer. Bialita is good, but like you don't necessarily want him to be your center. And unless you're So unless you're just really into Marvin Bagley still and think that he could be your center of the future rather than just playing a bunch of power forward as an offensive hub. Uh, Horford does make some sense for this team, especially if they, they want to win now. But still, I just don't know what it takes to move that contract. And we, I'll, I'll stop there because we, we get into more of this in the podcast. Other teams where it feels like it might make sense, the Magic, we know that they just need shooting and perhaps Evan Fournier could leave this summer as a player option, even if he doesn't. They just need more shooting on the wings. Uh, Aaron Gordon would be a great fit in Sacramento. I'd be curious if you make that move. Should you be Orlando? You'd have to include other money for one. And then two, now you're saddled with um, four years of, of Buddy Heald as opposed to two years of Aaron Gordon. And you, like Jonathan Isaac's hurt and extension eligible. They're, like Mark Alfoltz is extension eligible. You're just in this weird place where I don't know if you can justify making um, such a substantial addition for someone who's not necessarily young and still has four years left on on his deal. Um, and it becomes, to me, a lot harder to move Aaron Gordon when you have Isaac out next year. Uh, maybe you're really high on Aminu coming back from injury, and then you have Chumo Keke, who didn't really play, uh, or who just didn't play at all this year as a rookie, if you, if you think that you're going to get them serious reps. 
I'd be curious, look, if Vladi Divac was still there, I would say that Nikola Vucevic would absolutely be like, maybe that's a swap that can that can work. And then now it's time to just lean into Mo Bamba or Aaron Gordon playing more five and you have Kem Birch. Um, but I don't know if the Kings want to invest that much money in a center at this point. And that maybe they would rather have, like, would you rather have Vooch or, or Al Horford? I guess you would rather have, maybe that's a stupid question right now. Um, Vooch is cheaper and he's younger. So yeah, I, I just don't know. Is, is Vooch for Buddy Heald? Like, is that framework that makes any sense for, for Sacramento? I, I don't know. Are you willing to include anything else if you're Orlando there? And and again, I come back to now you have Buddy Heald on their contract for four years, and it does feel like the Magic are one of those teams that are just on tilt where they could pivot into a rebuild at any moment or at least um, that they should. And so going this route might might be a little bit weird for them. Looking at other teams, he would be fantastic in Milwaukee. I don't think that they have the the asset firepower to get him a huge part of any hypothetical deal there would be, can you find a third team, not only willing to take Eric Bledsoe, but maybe who actually wants Eric Bledsoe, and then how are you building out the offers from there? Like, you can give a... I would give up Dante DiVincenzo for um, Buddy Heald, and if you include him in a first, um, you do have pick 24 in this draft, or you can trade a distant first-round pick. Uh, is that enough? Like, if, if we're talking that and salary filler for Buddy Heald, like a first-round pick and Dante DiVincenzo, I, I do not know. And then it's a matter of making the rest of the money work. You're not sending George Hill back to Sacramento. That's just not happening. They might have interest in Brooke Lopez, but at that point, I think you get into, well, I'm not high on the final three years of Brooke Lopez's deal. Then you get into the, the, the issue of, well, are we overpaying for Buddy Heald? Because he's might be a top 50 player, might not be a top 50 player. Uh, so th- there's a lot of things to consider there. Memphis is a spot I love for him. I don't know what you give up. They have ways to match the salary. Just you look at, they have a ton of these mid-level deals. Kyle Anderson at 9.5 million. Tyus Jones at 8.8. Justice Winslow at 13 million. Um, Jonas Valanciunas at 15 million. Um, Gorgi Jang in the final year of his deal at 17.3 million. So like they have the means to build some offers, but you don't have a first-round pick in this year's draft. It's headed to Boston. Is Justice Winslow someone who interests the Kings? They do sort of need a lockdown defender, but Memphis went to a great deal of trouble to bring him on. And at the same time, maybe they're more willing to move him because he had the back issues um, when he arrived there, then couldn't play when they went back to the bubble either. And so are they a little bit more out on him and view it as if they just want to say they've turned cap space into Buddy Heald instead of Justice Winslow? That's fine with them. But how much does a Justice Winslow interest Sacramento? Because he would have to be the meat and potatoes of that deal. Like, may, I, you could be fine giving up Grayson Allen, shot the ball well from three this year, but Buddy Heal is a, a better shooter. Um, so, if you can do as Justice Winslow and Dylan Brooks, like, is that something that is going to interest Sacramento? I, I honestly, I, I don't know. Dylan Brooks feels like a little redundant in that situation uh, if they're going to keep Bogdan Magdanovich and you have Garen Fox. Another team that I thought about and that actually might have an easier path to getting Buddy Heald would be Indiana. Um, they have Miles Turner. I have Miles Turner as the better player than Buddy Heald right now. And so how are you building out this deal where um, Buddy Heald makes more than Miles Turner is on the books for $18 million. And so you have to give up other money in this trade, which, which yes, you have Doug McDermott to do, but like are the Kings sending you anything else back? Uh Victor Oladipo would be interesting. Like maybe the Kings are trying to make like the star power play where if you can bring in Oladipo and like Oladipo and McDermott for like Buddy Heald and are, are you trading a pick? Uh, and then you could say, look, 
this is an all NBA type player, put him next to De'Aaron Fox, um, get him going off the ball a little bit more, which might be good for him um, following his quad injury. And then he's someone that can um, go up against these, these, I don't want to say top tier wings, but he's going to give you solid backcourt defense and then can also defend some threes. Like maybe they can talk themselves into that. Or again, Miles Turner wouldn't be a terrible fit on this roster either. Uh, but Indiana with Buddy Heald, if they're whoever they hire as their next head coach, if they're really looking to up their three-point volume, like he does a great deal for them there. And I think knowing Indiana's track record where they give up big name players and they don't want to pivot into these rebuilds. And I'm just I'm specifically thinking of the Paul George trade when you look at how they fleshed out that return where they took Sabonis and Oladipo and everyone thought they could have gotten more or should have gone a different direction. If they're interested in still competing post Oladipo trade, which would be my guess, because they had to know that this was a possibility when you went out and you got Malcolm Brogdon and even Jeremy Lamb before his injury traded for TJ Warren, someone like a Buddy Hill would interest them because I feel like he helps them raise that floor for them. And uh, that's really all I have on the teams where I feel like could talk themselves into going for Buddy Hill. Like Denver could use his shooting, but uh, how much do you damage your defense if you go Gary Harris and another smaller salary for for Buddy Heald. Like, that would just be an incredibly interesting fit. You could talk yourself into Dallas maybe too, but you need to get stops if you're the Mavericks. And unless you're going to get someone who's maybe a little bit more adept at creating his own shot, like a Danilo Gallinari, I'm not sure that giving up Tim Hardaway Jr. and then a first and then other money for Buddy Heald necessarily tracks there. Um, Atlanta, dead last in three-point shooting this year. They have cap space. Just straight, they could take Buddy Heald's cap space into their book. So, I mean, if it's a matter of, you know, they'll take the Kings will take number six for buddy healed. Yeah, I would do it. Uh, I just don't know how much he ends up helping you uh, playing him and Kevin Herter and Trey young at the same time is probably a non-starter. And even if you're playing him with a Cam Reddish and a Deandre Hunter, like that puts a lot of pressure on the defense. John Collins is still there and he's like not as bad defensively as he was as a rookie, but he's not someone that's going to necessarily help your cause. If you if the cost is right, but if he's going to cost you, if he's going to cost you Cam Reddish or DeAndre Hunter, I probably balk. Um, or I I would say this: I give up one of number six Reddish or Hunter, and I would honestly be more inclined to give up Hunter at this point. But you might prefer to have Hunter just because um, his positional optionality is a little bit more rangier than Cam Reddish. And if you're going to bring Buddy Heald in, like you're very much saying we're going to play him at the two, or we're just going to if we play him at the three. Like those are going to be lineups where the, where the defense could get rolled. So if you can give up one of those players to get him, um, and then I'd be fine including Herter. Uh, maybe Sacramento is interested in John Collins. I, I don't know about that when they have Marvin Bagley there already. But if if you can use if it just takes one of Reddish Hunter and number six, one of those. I want to reiterate as the headlining piece, and then you you fl- you build out the offer from there. That's when I think that it would it would be um, something to talk about. I, I, the last team I'll mention, I don't really know if this makes a ton of sense. But if you're the Celtics and maybe you're looking to like get off a little money this year and you're worried about what Gordon Hayward's next contract is going to look like, building framework around Gordon Hayward, like for Buddy Heald deals, like not, is it that bonkers? Like with Sacramento, I've interest in Gordon Hayward. Let's say Gordon Hayward and, you know, the Celtics have three first round picks. And so it's weird to take, like you're taking on long term money in this situation. And Gordon Hayward's like a, a, a good player when he's healthy, but. Like, would they be willing to go 26 and 30 in Gordon Hayward for Buddy Heald? There might need to be more money involved, or there definitely need to be more money involved because uh, Hayward's player option is $34.2 million. Buddy Heald is making 
26. So it comes pretty close. So it would just take a small salary to, to make the money work there. And, uh, I, I'm looking just at Sacramento's books. Like they have a, they don't really have like a super small salary to give up. Now that I'm looking at it, like you would have to go with a, uh, Justin James there. So that's um, perhaps they're willing to do that. Um, it does seem like, from what I know, that they they like him. I don't, but, but if you're maybe they view Gordon Hayward as just someone, an extra ball handler, an extra creator, maybe that they can rely on a little bit more defensively. But that's that's like sort of reach, and you have to worry about paying him his next deal. Still, if you're getting two first round picks as part of the equation, I might even consider it if it's fourteen and you're just picking up another lottery pick. If, if I'm Boston, um, they have they don't need Buddy Hill to do anything for them on defense. Then just having that other three point outlet. Who knows how he would feel about being part of sort of this success by committee, though, if he had a problem in Sacramento. Is it going to be much better in Boston? Who knows? Those are teams, though, that spring to mind as Buddy Heald destinations. I have rambled enough, though. Let's start talking some Philadelphia 76ers with Bleacher Reports and Forbes and the NBA pods. Brian Toprek. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Brian, welcome to the Hardwood Knox podcast for the first time. I don't know why it's taken us this long to bring you on, or at least me specifically to bring you on, because we've been, I'll put in quotes, coworkers, because I don't know how often we've interacted, but almost a decade at this point. So talk about dropping the ball. But I'm, I'm excited to have you on for the first time. So I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Hopefully not the last time because, yeah, we've been colleagues, can we say, for a decade. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's long overdue, and I'm both excited and sad to talk about the Sixers. Yeah. They're, I, look, at least they're fascinating. But, like, they're, yeah. it's like the kind of – it's like a car wreck that you can't really look away from. So right. <laughs> it's like that type of deal. I'll start off with this, though. Uh, I even – I told you this, and then – and then Doc Rivers was hired. I said, look, I'm going to be reaching out to you as soon as um, they pick their coach so that we can do. I didn't want to date. The Sixers are the team you don't want to do a look ahead for because you know that it's going to be dated like in two days because something's going to happen. I was like, let's at least wait for the coaching hire. So then like I feel like five seconds after that, basically, uh, Doc Rivers gets hired. You wrote about this for Forbes. It was a really good article where you're focusing on you know, the X's and O's he brings. Like That's one focus, but there's going to be the emotional aspect of how he juggles what's going on with this team. What did you, how do you feel though overall about the hire? Is there anything you specifically like about it or that you are super concerned about? Yeah. Um, you know, I, before he became available and it was pretty clearly going to be either Mike D'Antoni or Ty Lu, I was pretty, pretty team Ty, uh, mostly just because the MDA fit with Embiid in particular had me nervous and I you know I have a half written Forbes article that will never see the light of day that was titled Six Retiring Mike D'Antoni wouldn't force a Joel Embiid trade dot 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 yet. So <laughs> um so I mean I think Doc is kind of the best of both worlds, right? So he like Ty has the championship experience, 
like MDA, he's got the experience dealing with a bunch of different superstars and he just has more coaching experience in general, whether it's, you know, the big three in Boston, the Lob City Clippers, now Kawhi and Paul George. So he's used to dealing with guys with big egos, which is good. Um, some of the stuff that has come out, both from Kevin Arnovitz in 2018, he kind of did a post-mortem on the Lob City Clippers and, you know, more or less said, like, Doc was not blameless with regard to the chemistry issues that plagued that team. Um, and then, you know, Johan, or Yo- Yoban Buha of The Athletic um, has, did a piece in January, I believe, starting kind of hinting at some behind-the-scenes chemistry issues, and a lot of Clippers people got mad at him. And then, you know, after Doc left, departed mutually, whatever, however they phrase it, <laughs> uh, published another article where it, it kind of, again, said, like, Doc was not necessarily great in terms of reaching all of these guys, and he had to bridge the gap between these hired guns in Kawhi and Paul George, and then, you know, the last year's team that overachieved with Montrez, Lou Williams, Pat Bev, all these guys, and he couldn't quite fit the puzzle pieces together. So, you know, do I think that Doc Rivers is going to be single-handedly the difference between a first-round sweep and a championship next year? No. I, I do, like, I love Brett Brown. I think Brett Brown's a great guy. I hope he gets back in the league somewhere. I, up until this year, I was not in favor of firing him. I thought the speculation last year was pretty unfair. I, I do think, and Brett even said it after they got swept, you know, he said, I didn't do a great job with this roster this year. Like, I just couldn't quite figure out how to make it work. And I don't know that anyone can. I mean, I, you know, it's, we'll get into it, but it, there are some major fit questions with the principal pieces involved, and it's not going to be easy to move off of some of them. So, I mean, I'm excited to see what Doc brings to the table. I think his experience with a non-shooting point guard in Rondo and a guy like Blake Griffin, who's a big guy who can also pass really well, that intrigues me with how he's going to use Simmons. And that's really, you know, going into this when whenever his presser is, like, that's the question I want him to answer is, like, what do you envision Ben Simmons' role being on offense, especially in the half court? Um, you know, he had KG in Boston and, DeAndre Jordan with the Clippers so like he's coached some all-star bigs as well like that should give him more familiarity with an archetype like Embiid versus a guy like D'Antoni where you can't see the fit working and then you know Woj mentioned it in his story Tobias Harris uh, had a career two halves of a year I guess with with uh, Doc and the Clippers so I'm excited to see if he can you know tap back into that because you know, the Sixers gave him a five-year, $180 million contract last summer, and they need to get more return on investment than that than they did this year. If there's the Tobias Harris element is one I didn't think about. I will say, though, so you you talk about, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff, and I have a follow-up question about that in a second, and I, I think that's obviously concerning based off the struggles he seemed to have with two different iterations of the Clippers. Uh, that being said, even with the Clippers' offense, while they were – like good this year it just felt like there was i don't want to say no rhyme or reason to it because that's just mean like there just wasn't a flow and for a Mm -hmm. team like philly that desperately needs something resembling a flow on offense that's what's going to worry me about doc but then when you mentioned tobias harris i'm like you know those that clippers team after the blake griffin trainer like that was genuinely fun they did some cool stuff 
and perhaps that's the hope. But my biggest concern is like, well, he was there dealing with that where they were devoid of superstar egos. And now you're coming into mm-hmm. a Sixers organization where it feels like they've emboldened Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid specifically to the point of entitlement. And I'm not yeah. sure how accurate that would be. And is Doc really going to lay the hammer down? Like, it seems like they might be a more, on the one hand, I'm like, I hate when people, and I feel like I've mentioned this a zillion times now on this podcast. I hate when people box coaches into a corner or like try and pigeonhole mm-hmm. them. And I feel like it happens a lot with black head coaches where it's like, they're great mm-hmm. motivators and you're not really focusing on like what they can do as a tactician here. I'm actually worried about like, is he going to be the one to inspire this team or discipline this team? Because we know he's, I wouldn't say he's as laid back as a, like Mike D'Antoni feels like, yeah. um, but they don't practice. Like, are they going to practice during the regular season? They're probably not going to have shoot arounds. Like that became a thing. Is he going to get away from that? Because it seems like this team might need that type of structure. And it's something that I think, you know, Jimmy Butler said it like maybe more bluntly. And then I feel like JJ Redick has hinted at it a couple of times. It feels like this team needs that type of structure. Mm-hmm. And I'll give doc the benefit of the doubt that I think all head coaches with the exception of Tom Thibodeau and Jim Boylan are more adaptive than anyone gives them credit for. Um, so I'll give the benefit of the doubt there, but like, that's a real thing that needs to happen where I feel like if he takes the approach that he had, even with, um, the non-superstar Clippers, like that he had for a season and a half, however long it was, I don't know that that ends up working with this team. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Josh Richardson, after they got swept, like straight out said they did not have accountability this year and they need more of it next year. And, you know, as much as I make fun of hashtag heat culture, you know, he's coming from that organization and that was the one he started his career with that's the only other one he's known so for him to come to philly and just (laughs) bluntly say like we didn't have this and we need it it was a wake-up call and that was a lot you know after uh brett got fired that was a prevailing theme in the uh the zoom call with elton brand was like how do you establish this culture of accountability and you know he said it starts with him in the the front office but it's going to trickle down to the coaches and the players so um, we had, uh, Tomer Azarli of clutch points on our pod yesterday. Um, he, you know, he's, he's based in LA has been covering the Clippers for a while now. So he had some good insight into just how, you know, the teams responded to doc. Uh, and he, he said he's optimistic that he can, like, he thinks one of the big selling points for doc is that he will get Ben and Joel to buy in now, how long that lasts, I think is the big question. But I think at first, I, you know, I, I, I do think the Sixers team just needed a new voice in the front of the room. And, you know, I, I don't think Doc Rivers, like, I don't know that he is, you know, a top five tactician in the league, but I don't think he's like Jim Boylan or Luke Walton. Like, I think he's in that, you know, that, that gray area in the middle where it's like, he's not Spolestro, he's not Popovich, he's not Rick Carlisle, but, you know, I think he is, a, a genuinely good coach in, in a number of facets. He has some stubborn tendencies and Tomer highlighted, you know, he was stuck with uh, Montrez over Zubac in the playoffs for way too long against Denver. Um, so, you know, it, you have to worry about if they don't make major moves this off season is you know, like stubbornly try to force the Al Horford thing, even though we saw it doesn't really work that well. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted in their next coach, regardless of who it was, was, you know, you just need to experiment in the regular season and try out different things. I think if the, we've, if the playoffs have underscored one thing, 
it's that versatility in this day and age is going to win more often than not. And teams are, you know, when you get to the playoffs, teams are going to be able to take away or try to take away. They know what your strengths are. They're going to specifically target those. So if you have ways to adapt and you've practiced those throughout the regular season, then you're not going to be caught off guard. But if you've been playing the same way every game, like, you know, Mike Budenholzer's Bucks, and then a team figures out a strategy to stop you, then you're like, "Uh uh-oh, right? (laughs) maybe we should have tried something else in the regular season. Like, that's what, you know, with Spo in the zone, as much as it's fun to say zone is for cowards, like, the Heat broke that out a lot in the regular season, and it paid major dividends in the playoffs. So, you know, I hope Doc can take his experience from, you know, both Lob City and this past year's Clippers team and realize some of his shortcomings, but then also we'll see how he fills out his staff too. I mean, we saw Woj mention Alvin Gentry as a possibility for one of his assistant coaches. Um, based on what I've heard from some New Orleans guys, they seem to love that fit. So, you know, this this is not a finished product, either coaching staff or roster at the moment. Yeah, and I think the bigger thing for me is like, it doesn't matter whether they hire Mike D'Antoni or Ty Lu. It's the personnel rather than the coach that's going to define this team because it's such a, you know, round peg, square hole situation, square peg, round hole, however it goes. And to that point, I'm going to say this one more time for the people in the back. And we've gotten pushback <laughs> on this on this podcast specifically from listeners who love every single one of you. You do not move Joel and beat or Ben Simmons. It's not happening right now. Like it's just, it's not happening. You don't default to giving up two top fifteen players unless you assume you don't have a way out. And as bad as their books look right now, they don't know for a fact that they can't figure out something else to do because they haven't tried it. Like see mm-hmm. what they can do over the off season first. To that point, though, because they are in per- and look, the other thing is like they've been a net plus together on a court, the court for the past three years. This season was like the closest they came to not being a, mm-hmm. a net positive on the court. I think um, it might not. Yeah. So plus 1.8 points per 100 possessions per cleaning the glass. Like that's not and an offensive rating in the 22nd percentile, which is just <laughs> so bad. But because they're not the perfect fits, how much does it matter that they seemingly don't like each other? And people can point yeah. to like Kobe and Shaq um, or the Lob City era Clippers. And here would be my rebukes. Kobe and Shaq won titles. This team has mm-hmm. not. And I actually wouldn't use the Lob City Clippers as like a good example because they they fell apart like in the playoffs yeah. at points and there was like this grating aura about them like that you could just sense even when they were at their peak. And like I feel like even J.J. Redick then might have hinted at it. So how much then does it actually matter that they don't like each other? Or don't yeah, I mean, or don't love each other. I don't even know how to put it. Like, do they actually hate each other? I'd like, but how much does it matter that their relationship isn't? Let's say it's not peachy keen, right? I mean, they're not like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, who genuinely seem to like each other, and you you know fit well on the court together. You you cannot envision a Boston Celtics future in which both of those guys aren't there for the next five years. Like, I can very easily envision a Sixers future in which one of Ben or Joe is not there. You know even in a few years. Um, I'm with you that, you know, right now, I think they want to see what, what doc brings to the table and how he can get these guys working in concert with each other. And then also with whatever supporting cast is in place Um, during Elton Brand's conference about 
firing Brett, he said straight up, I am not trading these guys this off season. They're 24 and 26. They want to be here for a long time. We want to better compliment them. Now that will be easier said than done, but you know, I, I would hope, I mean, I'm hoping they're watching the finals right now because like that is, you know, LeBron James and Anthony Davis would be the, the end goal for those two guys. You know, in theory, they have similar, like Ben has a similar skill set and build to LeBron and B could be the Anthony Davis. Not saying those guys are there yet. They're not. LeBron and AT are significantly <laughs> better than Ben and Joel. But, you know, seeing how those guys are working and have really dominated these playoffs you know they're two wins away from a ring right now and it doesn't seem like Miami has a chance to stop them so like it it would not shock me if things go south this year if we really do start to have the conversation of trading one of Ben or Joe and I think it would probably be Joe on the move just because I mean he hasn't been shy about admitting that he was really pissed off that they did not bring back JJ Reddick and Jimmy Butler. Um, I would have thought he was on Reddick's. <laughs> yeah, no, and yeah, he was on Reddick's podcast. Uh, I think it was in August, and he said like the off season changes. Like I just wasn't having fun playing basketball this year. Like I was mentally checked out. I was like kind of going through the motions, and that's just not. Not only is it not what you want to hear from the your franchise center from the guy you're paying that much money, but like. You have to wonder if things don't change, are we just going to get 60% Joe? I mean, you could see it this season. Like he, he, I don't want to play like body language doctor, but like the, the Joel Embiid that was here this year was not the same player that was here last year. And, and if, you know, the you fit could see issues. It on, you could see it on defense at points, it felt like. And he, he was dominant yeah. defensively when he was on the core by and large, but like you could just see it on certain possessions. Yeah. So, you know, if those fit issues continue, do we run into the same problems next year? And if so, then I think it's reasonable to start, you know, I'm not saying they're under any pressure to trade either one of these guys. Ben just signed the extension. He's locked up for five more years and Bede's still got three more years on his deal. So, you know, I feel like when you're two years away from free agency, that's when we start to have the, so what are we doing here? Like, are we married long term or not? Because, you know, then you can get, if you wait till 2022, then it's like the, okay, he's going to demand a trade like Anthony Davis and force your hand. So, yeah, I, I don't think Doc takes this job, honestly. If, if, if you know, Elton Brand, or I'm sure he asked Elton, like, what's the plan here? Are we going to keep these guys? Right. Or are we open to trading one? And I, you know, I don't think he takes the job if Elton's like, well, <laughs> now we might trade it. We'll we might trade Embiid this offseason. I don't know. We'll see. Can Embiid be the best player on a championship team? It's a really good question. And it's one I've been grappling with uh, throughout the postseason, really, because, you know, he put up good numbers in that Celtic series. I think he averaged around 30 and 12, and they got their heads beat in for four straight games. Now, even look at that. Was it the Raptors series last year where they like they lost that series during the minutes he was not on the floor? And so like that team went on to win the title. And so that that would lend you to believe Oh, he can easily be the best player on a championship team. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, they were plus, I think it was plus 90 with him on the court. And I think it was minus 109 in 99 minutes with him off the court. So if they have, <laughs> like, if they just have a replacement level backup setter, they probably win that series. And you could make the argument that they would go out to win the title last year. 
So, you know, I think the question isn't necessarily Embiid specifically. I think it's more just how championship teams are constructed in today's NBA. And I think you need a star two-way wing to have a legit chance at a title. Uh, they should so, have traded for one in the middle of last year named Jimmy Butler and then re-signed him. That would have been a good idea. I know. It's crazy. I just I wonder where they could have possibly gotten a star two-way wing. Uh, but, you know, as you said, if if they win the title last year, Joel Embiid's the best player on that team, I think. But, you know, Jimmy Butler is 1A, 1B with him. So I think he needs that type of player next to him to win a title. Can mm-hmm. Ben Simmons develop into that player? Hopefully. I mean, that's what they're going to need. Mm-hmm. I don't think Tobias Harris can. So, you know, a lot of this... Ultimately, like it all still rides on Ben and Joe, and I think they had a lot more margin for error a couple of years ago before they started making all these trades. And you know now their cap is or their books are just totally shot. Uh, so you know they they like I I regardless of what happens with them moving forward, I think those two guys, even though they are imperfect fit, could have won a title together. But I am wondering now if it's like if they've made so many mistakes over the last few years that. It might be too far gone, and you know maybe this iteration of the Sixers can't win a title together. But I don't think they're ready to give up on it quite yet. On the Ben Simmons side of this, how important is it? Or one, do you ever see Ben Simmons expanding his range? I'm not even talking about to the three point line. Like, how about outside the three foot line? Basically, that's obviously <laughs> hyperbolic. Um, do you ever see that happening? And then. Ultimately, though, how important is that happening if you want the Embiid partnership to work? Because part of me is just like, you know, if he even just hit more of his free throws, like Mm -hmm. maybe they would just be fine. But then I'm like, no, you know what? Like there needs to be more variance to his offensive range. But I honestly, I'm just curious as to what you think about if you want this partnership to work. um, And regardless of even if they put the right personnel around them at one point, like does Ben Simmons need to expand his offensive portfolio in some form? I think so. I mean, I, I I think the focus on it can be overblown at times because it tends to ignore everything else that he brings. You know, like if people are saying Ben Simmons is an all-star because he can't shoot, like that's just objectively not true. He's one of the best, most versatile defenders in the NBA right now, as evidenced by him being on the All-NBA team. He's fantastic. Um, you know, I wrote a piece for Forbes going into this past season saying like that won't the jump shot alone will not make or break his season. Does he take strides defensively? His finishing around the rim, he's getting better, but he can still improve in that regard as well. As you mentioned, the free throw percentage needs to go up. Uh, I, I think you know that in concert with him finishing around the rim, like if he is more confident in his ability to shoot free throws and he's a better finisher around the rim, that's going to make him just a more effective offensive player. Uh, you know, in and of itself, but ultimately, yes, like <laughs> he does, he does need to eventually start taking jump shots. And I do think, you know, we saw it this past season when he hit the shot, I think it was early against Cleveland and Brett Brown after the game is like, tell his friends, tell his manager, tell his agent. Yeah, I want to see at least one, sh- one three per game from Ben moving forward. And Ben didn't take another three for, I think 25 games. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, so that was not great. And you know, I think Doc will probably come in and issue the same challenge, but will say like, hey, man, I'm not messing around. Like you're actually going to take at least one three a game because 
you know, Ben has been working on that shot. Everyone in around Sixers prac, like I'm not at, at the practices every day. I live in Baltimore and I used to be in Nashville. So I'm like not in Philly directly. Um, but everyone around the team says like he's working on it and, you know, he knows he needs to add it to his game to hit his ceiling. Like, you know, I think it's true for any NBA player. Like DeAndre Jordan would be a much better NBA player if he could hit three pointers. He never added that to his game and that capped his ceiling. Ben Simmons, if he wants to hit that MVP level, like he, if he stagnates right now, he can be a, you know, consistent all-star or fringe all NBA guy for the rest of his career. That's cool. But he won't hit his ceiling. Like he could be, you know, top 10 top five even if he's got a consistent jumper so yeah I mean especially given you know Embiid's preference to work down low and like just his dominance in that area of the court you're gonna need to put spacers around him so you know I think it is something that ultimately it needs to come around if this thing is gonna last beyond the next few years uh, but I don't think we're going to see Ben Simmons bombing 10 threes a night next year either. I think it's going to be slower than a lot of people would like. I do. I think because of that, though, like there's a, there is, as you mentioned, like an underappreciation for what he actually does, like a, f- a fantastic passer. But really, his defense, he might be he has to be one of the three most versatile defenders in the NBA mm-hmm. right now. And I was writing about this like it was in an article I wrote semi recently. Like his versatility and the B ball indexes, Krishna Narshu has the uh, basic defensive versatility measurement. And among everyone who uh, played at least uh, 500 possessions this past season, um, only OG and OB, J- James Harden, which is just funny because of how they move him around to hide him. And Ronnie <laughs> Hollis Jefferson only graded out as more versatile. And then you look at among everyone who played at least a thousand minutes this season. Only Terrence Ferguson, Royce O'Neal, and Torrey Craig spend more time guarding number one options. And so the workload mm-hmm. that he carries, like I know Joel Embiid is kind of the heart and soul of that defense because not of what he just does at the rim because of what his presence at the rim actually means. Like it changes, it warps an entire team shot selection. But like Ben Simmons can be in the defensive player of the year conversation in any given season. And yet, I, I think I'm in firm agreement with you. It's just that it feels... You shouldn't be able to say this about a top 15 player now, top 15, top 20. It feels like he's like so far short of what his ceiling might be, where it's like we're not even talking about it. I feel like if he had any semblance of a floater, a mid-range mm-hmm. jumper, like a standstill three-pointer of like like Aaron Gordon level, like standstill <laughs> three-pointer or something, we're looking at a top five player with multiple MVP awards. And that just like is – I know shooting is like this fundamental thing that we can't just say, well, if he had this, like that's a big part of the game. So he doesn't have it and it matters. But he's already just so good where it's, it's, it's similar to Giannis where it's at least Giannis mm. is taking them though. But if Giannis was hitting his threes in a league average clip, like imagine like what that would mean for him. But Giannis is at a level where he's taking them like these, like, you know, turnaround jumpers or three pointers. And he's won multiple MVPs. Now, maybe even Ben Simmons kind of like putting pressure on defenses, not necessarily the form of uh, efficiency, but even volume, like mm-hmm. maybe that changes the perception of him a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I was listening to, I think Stan Van Gundy was on Howard Beck's podcast a while ago and they were talking about this and it was either Howard Beck or Zach Lowe. I don't, I think it was Beck though. I think um, it was Beck. And, I remember that episode. Yeah. yeah. Stan Van Gundy's and, uh, so good, by the way. I love yeah, that. Yeah. He was, and, and you know, Beck was making this point about like, 
yes, Ben does a lot of things well, but ultimately, like, he does need to add this shot. And Stan Van Gundy was pushing back a little bit because uh, Beck brought up Giannis as well. And Stan Van Gundy is like, teams are guarding Giannis. Like, they're goading him into that shot. So, I mean, it's it's tricky because I think during the regular season, teams, you know, you just don't have time to prepare for individual matchups every night. So you, you might be able to like goad people into guarding Ben Simmons. But once you get into a playoff series, like teams will be inviting him to take that shot. I don't know that it necessarily changes their defensive tactics at all. They're going to leave him wide open until he proves that he can hit, you know, a a reasonable percentage of them. Um, But again, I just think for like the psychological spacing aspect of it, I do think it is important for him to eventually add it. I I don't want to compare him to LeBron at any point because like LeBron is just <laughs> LeBron no matter what portion of his career you take him he is, is better than current Ben Simmons but you know it feels like he Ben is in the like 07 LeBron era where you remember like the Spurs finals they were just right leaving LeBron wide open and daring him to shoot and he would and just like it was a low efficiency strategy Le, you know 07 LeBron didn't have Joel Embiid so that that can hide some of Ben's weakness, but you know LeBron didn't start winning rings until he added that credible jump shot. So again, I think it's going to be a slow process. I don't think this happens. You know, I don't think he's going to hit a high volume of threes next year at a respectable percentage. I I, I would love to be wrong, but I just think it's going to take more time than that. But I mean, I think you know, like again, like that's. One of the big questions for Doc is like, how do you get him to this point? And he, yeah, we like saw Brett it, I mean, was like, openly like pining for Ben Simmons to shoot right. threes in the press. Right. And like we saw, you know, Doc with Blake Griffin. We saw Blake over time. Blake Griffin came into the league with the reputation of like, just a dunker, doesn't do anything from beyond five feet. And like over time has developed into a pretty good shooter for a big man so he like, hit more pull-up threes in 2018 2019 than rookie trey young there that's, yeah that's how I mean, far like, blake griffin came that that is the trajectory you would like for ben simmons to take over time but again how you know how many years did that take for blake griffin to get to that point so like bottom line yes it's important no it's not the only thing he needs to improve upon you know, this off season, next season, whatever, like the finishing around the rim and the free throws, I think are equally important with regard to his offensive upside. Here's, I think an interestingly difficult question. Who's more important to the Sixers future? Uh, Matisse Thibel, Josh Richardson, or Shake Milton? So I actually don't think this is that difficult. All right. Uh, well then I'm out and, of touch. <laughs> well, well, and here's why. So, I mean, Josh Richardson in a vacuum is the best player of those three. But, you know, he's going to be a free agent in 2021. And again, I mean, we'll see what happens with Doc. I, I think clearly that his first year in Sixers land did not go as he would have liked. He didn't play as well as he would have hoped. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I love Josh Richardson. I, and I think, you know, this was probably just a bad year and hope he's a lot better next year. But I guess there there is a question of whether he's a great fit next to Ben and Joel just because, you know, they tried to try him out as a backup point guard that did not work very well. Great defender, but not a consistent three point shooter. And you, you need 
guys to be able to knock down threes. So if that high volume doesn't come, you wonder whether he has a long-term place. And ultimately, if they're going to make bigger moves this offseason, you know, he's on a very affordable contract. You could use him as part of the bait to get off of one of Horford or Tobias. So I think it comes down to Shake and Thibel. And it's really just which do you prioritize defense versus offense. And I think for the Sixers' specific needs next to Ben and Joel, I think Shake, especially on the contract that he's on, it's three years, you know, one point some minimum million dollars per year. Um, given the the Sixers' financial issues, I think like he's basically their best hope of getting out <laughs> of this thing and keeping that that pairing intact. So I I would go Shake here, and that's with all due respect to Thibel, who you know is a fantastic defender already, but the shot is just so inconsistent. And again, like next to Ben and Joel specifically, you need guys to be able to actually knock down catch and shoot threes. Yeah, and look, I mean, like he's never going to be, or it doesn't look like he profiles as the guy that's going to like dribble a lot at any point either. No. I would have the so I didn't realize Shake Milton was under contract for three more years. That's just I guess something that kind of flew under the radar for me. So I get that pick, and with Josh Richardson hitting free agency in twenty twenty one, I understand why he wouldn't be a pick. But for me, he almost was because it feels like they need functional shooting with a little bit of ball handling, and like he mm. can. I know he was inconsistent last year, but if you gave him like a little bit better spacing, I feel like he could be that guy. But then when you're looking at affordability, just impending free agency in general. It would be hysterical if he ends up with the Heat in 2021, by the way. Uh, next <laughs> I agree. I, uh, after, I, if, I, he, if he lasts two seasons in Philly, he might just be like foaming at the mouth to get back to the Heat culture, and maybe he'll go back there. But with Shake under contract, that's for the next three years at under a total of $6 million. That's a really good point. But like that just puts like an awful lot of pressure on him because he looked overmatched at times during the, the postseason. I don't know how much of a – uh, learning curve you can afford to give him when your your hopes are so immediate. Right. Yeah. I don't think he should be a full time point guard. I think he he profiles as a combo. Like he can be a ball handler, but I think probably better off as a secondary ball handler rather than primary. And again, this goes back to like the what is Ben Simmons' role in the half court offense? Is is he a point guard? Is he your full time point guard or not? Because that's going to lead into what types of players are you going after this off season? Um, yeah. I mean, like, again, I, I think Josh is going to have a better year next year. And like, part of me hopes that he looks at the landscape in 2021 and, you know, it's the, the with the COVID financial uncertainty, we just don't know how much cap space there's going to be. And like, maybe he decides to take a short term extension because then my answer might pivot to him instead. Um, but yeah, I have a piece coming out at Fansided in a few weeks about the Sixers in 2030, and it's basically just the most bleak projection of like what, how these series of missteps can continue, and one of them does involve Josh Richardson going back to the Heat in 2021. <laughs> so, good, good call there. Um, I'm not sure to what extent you've. I'm like, I would say shin deep in draft prep at this point, which is not high at all. It's like a little higher than ankles, but not much higher than that. Is there anyone that you like for the Sixers that you think could be available at number 21? Or is your just expectation that it doesn't even really matter because whoever they're taking is not going to start the season on the roster? It's yeah, that's a fair question. Um, <laughs> well, if, if they sell the pick, I will write a 3000 word 
screed at Forbes just raging about it. But, I mean, that is one of their big trade chips, not only 21, but they have two early seconds plus two seconds in the, in the you know, further down in the round. So, again, if they are trying to move off of one of Horford or Tobias, I would expect those would be up for grabs. Um, I, I think ultimately they're going to need a point guard in some capacity. Having one functional point guard on the roster might help. And luckily, it seems like in that range, there actually should be a decent number of them. Um, Kira Lewis, if he slips, I think would be a good fit. I know some people on Sixers Twitter, I don't know if it's at 21 or maybe it's one of these early seconds, but Desmond Bain's gotten some hype. Grant Riller's gotten some hype because I think you know, ultimately you need ball handlers and shooters. Like you've got forwards, you got centers, we're set there. No more bigs, please. You know, go go after point guard, shooter guard, those types. Um, Tyrese Maxey is another guy if he falls that far. Uh, Jamius Ramsey, Jamius, I, I don't know how you say his name, but the, the kid from Texas Tech, um, you know, any of those options. Like, I, I think they're actually in, you know, all of these teams in the top 10 to try to trade down because they don't want, <laughs> they're like, we don't like any of these guys that much. I think at 21, the Sixers are actually probably going to have some good options. And even at 34 and 36, so given their financial reality over the next couple of years, like this may be their best chance to add some very inexpensive young talent. And I genuinely hope they take advantage of it. Yeah. I'm like, it's, I don't want to say it sucks, but like they're in a situation where there could be some intriguing players to me that would fall. Like they could be great swing pieces, but like if they still have questions about their job, like if it's an RJ Hampton or a Cole Anthony who falls, it's like, well, maybe you should gamble on them, but it's like, well, like if, if their jumpers don't pan out, well, then like you're just completely screwed. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see whether they could. I just don't have a feel for this draft at all. Even reading like the mocks and the the big boards is I don't know like who's gonna fall where. Like uh, I've fallen in love with Patrick Williams. There's always a guy or two that mm-hmm. I just fall in love with um, who's not like one of the top top guys. And he was like mocked like in the low twenties at one point, and now he's like on like number seven on people's big boards. And yeah. so it's like I, I don't think they could afford it, even if he was there, which I don't think he would be his jumpers too and established for them to probably give him a chance. But I'm wondering if, because it's this draft where it's so hard to have a feel for it, like, do you have the, you know, when you're talking about smaller scale moves, instead of swinging for the fences, do you have like a little bit of juice to, to move up and maybe get in a position mm-hmm. to get like a Sadiq Bay or a Devin Vassell? I don't know. I don't know where those guys are going. Are they going to go inside the top 10 outs? If they're going inside the top 10, then no, you probably don't have the juice to get in there. If they're going to fall outside the top 10, well then it's like, well, you know, maybe, but I'm, I'm kind of, I, I kind of almost default to I, I think that this pick is eventually just going to be traded. Yeah, I I, I lean toward that as well, whether, it, as you said, it could be a trade-up uh, or, I mean, I, I think most likely even more than a trade-up is if if they're trading this pick, they're probably trying to get out of Horford in particular. Um, So before I get into that Horford-Tobias-Harris stuff, the Sixers are going to use the mini-MLE, right? Like, do we need to... <laughs> Do we need to worry about um, their governors not ponying up the the five million and change, whatever it's going to end up being? I I hope so. I don't know. I mean, they've they've sworn that they were willing to pay the luxury tax. Well, they're not going to have a choice was... on that next season, right? <laughs> right, right. But I mean, that is part of the problem. Is that I think they built this roster assuming the cap would continue going up. I mean, by all reasonable projections, it's going to stay flat. So they're already going to be 
think about 17 million over the tax line. And once you start to get into that, like 20 to $25 million over range, it gets really expensive really quickly. Like a $5 million contract ends up costing you, I think close to 25 to 30 million ultimately. So, you know, I, that's probably another question that I hope Doc Rivers asked in this interview. It's like, <laughs> what, are you guys going to cheap out or like, are you, do you have, you know, empty pockets like, uh, like Balmer that you just don't care? Um, I would hope that they do. And I think, again, a, a point guard's probably the way to go here. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, last year they spent it on Mike Scott, which, uh, backfired significantly because he as much as i love mike and you know he is you signed fucking al horford what are you doing burning that money on mike scott after doing that (laughs) it blows my mind like mike played well and i think he he had some you know like clearly the locker room loves him his look he has emojis tattooed on him he's clearly a legend but like yeah like what what are you like what the decision making there was uh, worse than questionable (laughs) Yeah, it was a complete misallocation of resources. Like, if you bring him back on a minimum contract, great. But don't use – I think they ended up using the room exception on him. And it was just like – you know, it's just such a low-key mistake compared to what they gave Tobias and Al that it flies under the radar. But I think it was similarly detrimental to their – because, like, they, they had to rely on Howell Neto and Trey Burke for most of the year. And Trey Burke fell into Brett Brown's doghouse, like, nonstop. And so they just did not have a good answer at backup point guard. And then when Ben went down, it was like, all right, well, there goes our best wing defender and our best point guard. Right, and out. the other thing like, is like, couldn't you have like gotten, and obviously this doesn't sound the point guard issue, but there just seemed like, so like, why not Wesley Matthews? Like he only signed for the minimum with Milwaukee. Yeah. Like you couldn't have gotten him for the room exception. And look at how important he ended up being to them. He did fantastic defending Jimmy Butler relative to the task of defending Jimmy Butler um, (laughs) in the series that the Bucks lost. So it's just like, even just, you would think that again, even if you couldn't get a point guard, like wouldn't you, I just feel like you default to like a wing or like, or someone who's a little bit more plug and play or just at least not like you signed Horford to play power forward. And then I think the reality is Tobias Harris is going to have to play like some minutes at power forward. So why would you go ahead and then sign a four or five with the room exception? Like that's just bizarre. If you have, you have four bigs in Simmons and Bede, Horford and Harris, like you're good. (laughs) Your minutes are good there. It's already impossible to fit all four of those guys where they need to be. It was, I really do think it was just like trying to carry over some of the good vibes from last year. And it just totally backfired. So do you have like any free agents um, that you think could fall in that price range that you like for the Sixers this offseason? Yeah, so that's the problem. It gets really bleak at point guard yeah. after Fred Van Vliet. Um, you know, I don't think Gord Dragic is a realistic target at the taxpayer MLE. I would love to be wrong about that, but it feels like... Yeah, even with even- his torn plantar, I don't, I don't know if that would lower his value enough. I still think he probably feels like he's in line for like that huge one-year windfall from Miami. Yeah, that that would be my guess too. That they'll just try to keep him and Jay Crowder, and then punt it to twenty twenty one. So I think he's off the board. So like, <laughs> I mean, Jeff it's, Teague, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say Jeff Teague or DJ Augustine are probably the best bets, and it's you know neither you feel great about. But again, these aren't gonna be. You're not playing these guys thirty five minutes a night. It's like come off the bench, play fifteen to twenty minutes. Reggie Jackson, maybe. <laughs> playoff rondo let's just save him 
the state of the Sixers in the backcourt is such that it feels like they can't lose Alec Burks, who's not even yeah. a point guard, but it's just like, oh, he can dribble and shoot. Um, someone else who would be, I think would be a great fit, but I don't know. I know he's a like a non-bird RFA, but like I don't know or early bird RFA, excuse me, but like Javon Carter would be perfect for this team. I just mm-hmm. don't know how like serious Phoenix like and the money that Philly can give him, it's just like, well, why like why wouldn't Phoenix just keep him at that yeah. point? And that's the other thing I struggle with is like I almost thought like I know you want a point guard, but like Ben Simmons is a really good passer. So like if you like mm-hmm. surrounded him with maybe a a gallo or something, but like you can't even work out sign and trade scenarios because the Sixers are just so far past the what the expected apron is at this yep. point. And so I don't know, I don't know what you do because, like you said, the the point guard market is worse than bare bones at this point. Right. And so I think Alec Burks ends up being huge to keep for them. And then maybe is it does it make more sense then if you assume that you like let's say you can't get an Augustine, you're not going to get a Dragish. Is there like something to then, well, if you can keep Alec Burks, it might just be like, like maybe we need to fill the roster with Kent Bazemore. It's just like guys who can, who we know can shoot. Um, and he can facilitate a little bit, but guys we know who can shoot rather than trying to focus on the, the functional ball handling aspect. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you about Alec Burks. You know, he was one of the only guys on the team. You just like need guys without a conscience. Who, who just like do not care and are willing to just fire away. Cause you know, Ben is going to find them. And like Tobias, I tweeted a clip early in the season where he catches a pass above the break. There's no one within 10 feet of him. And he, he didn't pull. He tried to like drive in and <laughs> got called for an offensive foul. And I'm like, if Tobias is not taking this shot, the Sixers are so much more screwed than we realize. And, Little did I know how prophetic that would be. So, yeah, I would, I would love to see Alec Burks. I have no idea what kind of market he would have. My other thought is, like, Austin Rivers has a yeah. minimum player option. Maybe he comes, hangs out with his dad in Philly. Maybe his dad's willing to give him more than Houston, just like his dad was willing to give him more as an executive with the Clippers than probably any <laughs> other team on the face of this planet. Was that was that a 2016 contract, too? I can't remember because it was three years. It was, like, $42 million. But look, yeah, Austin Rivers shot like 36% or something on pull-up threes this year. And like that's something the Sixers could – and look, they have room to have both a him and an Alec Burks on this roster, quite frankly. Like they – like neither of those guys solve your point guard issues. But it's like you said, it feels like they just need the guys who, who actually can shoot and then are going to be willing to um, willing to shoot. Right. Yeah, just fill out your backcourt with actual playable bodies because they did not have – really anything <laughs> resembling that once Ben went down. So let's talk about this Tobias Harris, Al Horford oh. stuff. We'll start oh. with the quick question. Whose contract is worse right now? So Al Horford <laughs> has three years and $81 million left, but only 69 million of which is guaranteed silver linings. Mm-hmm. To- Tobias Harris is on the books for four years and 147.3 million dollars so which contract do you think is is harder to move i mean i've been of the mindset that al is harder to move but i'm I'm genuinely curious to get your take as well because like it's you know sixers twitter i think has been overly optimistic about how easy it is to move either of these guys and i think especially given the financial constraints of this summer where so few teams have cap space and there just aren't it's like you're gonna almost have to trade a bad contract for a bad contract, but both of these guys are, I mean, they're two of the worst contracts in the NBA. The only reason I choose Al over Tobias 
is one from a fit perspective. I think you can talk yourself into, okay, if you move Tobias to the four full time next to uh, Joel, like we've seen that work in 2018, 2019, that, that look was pretty effective. I just don't see a way unless Al Horford, you know, gets new knees <laughs> that he's going to be I, I, the fit between it wasn't him and Embiid or him and Ben. It's all three of those guys together. I think they averaged when they were on the court this year. I think it was 99.5 points per 100 possessions, which that seems is low. Just, yeah, <laughs> it's a little a little low. Not ideal. And like defensively, they were great. But like I think Al Horford ultimately is best as a, as a five on both ends of the court at, at this stage of his career. So um, I, I just think like Tobias, I know it's a bigger contract, but his age and like you could still talk yourself into, okay, he's not a great defender, but he can be like poor man's Carmelo. He'll give us, you know, 20 low twenties and seven rebounds a game. And that's fine. Al Horford. It's like, is this guy just totally washed? Like what can he provide? Because you know, that he had so many games this year where he just looked bad on both ends of the court. I think you really, you're taking a bigger leap, leap of faith. If you're another team, taking on Al Horford right now than you are Tobias Harris. I'd agree with you mainly because of Tobias Harris's age. Like he's only 28 mm-hmm. and it feels like he's 38 because he's played for a zillion NBA teams. And maybe the teams that are going to be willing to take on that contract, uh, they might actually be like better teams that feel like they're a third option away from being mm-hmm. like a serious title contender. And he is more than fit to do that. Like he was a legitimate, like, number two during that year that Gallo went off with the Clippers before he was traded to Philly. And so like, he can still be good. He's just not, I think after seeing him play in tandem with Jimmy Butler, like he's not the guy that's going to be that type of table setter or put the requisite pressure on the rim in crunch time Mm -hmm. to really diversify your offense. And if there's a team that doesn't need him to be that where Philly so badly needs him to be that, I think it's easier to justify that contract. And the other thing with Al Horford is if you told me, cause you're looking at the, the partial guarantee in the final year and it's like, well then it's really only two years. Like how do you pay someone $13 million to just not <laughs> play for you? And so it almost feels right. like you're forced to guarantee that con- like that partial guarantee is monstrous. Uh, it's 13.5 yeah. million, I think. So like, that's just not something to get rid of. And so you're almost, you almost are tying yourself to three years of it. And it's like you said, you worry about the injuries. Uh, if you could tell me he'd be healthy, I, I might pick Al Horford here. Uh, I mean, I might pick Tobias Harris's contract and also losing the revenue is going to be tough. But like when you're looking at their salaries, I think right now that you can say, don't look at their price tags in general because they're both seem, um, I'm pro players getting paid. Good for these guys getting all yeah. their money. Uh, but for a team, from a team perspective, they're making too much. I think you could say, though, that Tobias Harris is going to be worth 7 to $8 million more per year than Al Horford moving forward, which is what he's getting mm-hmm. paid right now. And that's where I ultimately land on that. The problem is that I don't think you can view Tobias Harris's contract then as an asset. It's relative. It's right. an asset relative to like the lesser of two evils, which isn't much of a selling point uh, for these. And so do you think the Sixers are, one, going to be looking to move one of them because I'm sure they'd be willing, but like, is this something they're actively going to look to do? And two, if they are like, are they going to be willing to glitz up the offers with the necessary buffers? And I'm like, you know, number 21 is fine, but like, are you willing to go further out with the first round picture mm-hmm. giving up? Are you willing to include Thibel 
in this? Are you willing to include Shake Milton in this? How many is it like, and how many are you going to need? Because it feels like you're going to need two sweeteners at least to yeah. get off one of these deals. And if you're looking to get a player who can actually like help you, it might be three because right. if the player coming back isn't on a bad contract, as you mentioned, then like that, that's like another hurdle that they have to clear. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, so I think if they're going to try to trade one, they would try to trade Horford first. Um, you know, I think that the doc Tobias connection, I think they're probably curious to see if they can unlock him. And again, the ages you mentioned. Um, so I think Horford would be the guy just because like, ultimately you don't need to be spending $28 million or $27 million on a backup center, which right. is what Al Horford profiles as. Like they can say he's a four and he can play next one beat all they want. It's just not true. You it's can't so annoying chase. on the Sixers part, by the way, that we finally got to a point where everyone recognized Al Horford as a center, and then they signed him to be a power forward. <laughs> it's like, well, I want to play power forward. And they're like, great, here's $109 million. To do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, he's he's a center. It's just he can't chase – defensively, he can't chase fours. They tried to play him in drop coverage as a backup center. He couldn't do that either. It's like – and again, as you mentioned, the, the knees in particular give you some concern. So – like, I think they could pretty easily flip him, not easily flip him, but if they were able to move him, I think they could get a replacement level big in his place for a lot less money because, like, they signed him as in part, as they won't admit it, but part of it was Embiid insurance. Like, they got so rocked in that Raptor series whenever Embiid came off the court, they were like, okay, cool. Now we have Al Horford. So for 48 minutes a night, we're going to have one of these guys, like an all-star center in theory on the court. We shouldn't get blown off. But they just ignored, like, oh, he, we shouldn't be paying $28 million yeah, it's for like, this. That's, just need... that's like great logic in theory, but not when it costs you $109 million. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, like Sixers Twitter's favorite trade target is Buddy Heald. And Jason Jones of The Athletic just wrote a piece last night about him because Buddy Heald has been feeding into this on Twitter. He's been like liking all these Philly posts. His open disdain for the Kings, even during contract extension talks was yeah i love it i love it yeah. <laughs> probably probably not a great side so like do i think the kings are willing to move off of buddy healed yes why would they be willing to move him for al horford like what would you have to include that's that's I've kind of questions like would they be willing to move harrison barnes for al horford like forget buddy healed to me i'm like are they gonna do barnes for horford without getting like two sweeteners in return right Right. Like that, that's the missing variable is how much do you have to include? Like, I think the Sixers would gladly give up 21 or any combination of picks in this year's draft because they'll just treat it as like, well, they're not on our roster, so they aren't, they aren't valuable. That's how they tend to value picks in recent years. Um, Zaire Smith, I think, is like the wild card that they don't care about and they just know it's not going to happen in Philly. I don't know how much, if any, trade value he has. I think he's. You know, probably just a lottery ticket at this point. I don't think he like moves the needle on a Buddy Heel deal. Um, so I, you know, I think they'll sniff around bigger names like that. Chris Paul was, of course, a a possible target as well. But who knows? With you know, I think his relationship with Doc uh, probably nixes that. Although wow, I didn't even really. I totally forgot about that too. That's a good point. Yeah, apparently they've like since been on good terms so maybe not and maybe you know maybe they but i don't know that seems like if you're adding chris paul 
to an already volatile locker room situation that just seems like a recipe for disaster. So, like, I, I think they'll sniff around the bigger names. You know, Andrew Wiggins would be another one where I could, like, they'll they'll place a call to Bob Myers and say, Andrew Wiggins, Al Horford, how much more do you want? You know, maybe Wiggins. Well, you know it's bad if Andrew Wiggins is the asset in that deal. I know. He I has know. he has three years and ninety four point two million dollars left on his deal, I believe. I've you I've clearly ninety four point seven million, excuse me, it's even a little bit more than that. So yeah. like he has more guaranteed money on his contract, but I guess because he's younger and like that makes him the asset in that deal. I don't know that I, I think I'd probably like that trade equally not at all for either team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I mean like my I, I landed on, I think they need to shoot a little lower and rather than do a one-for-one one swap, they need to, like, part of the problem with Horford is that just there aren't many teams that need a center at all, much less a 34-year-old being paid that much money. The one team I keep coming back to is New Orleans, not for Drew Holiday, because I just don't think there's, I, I don't think there is enough that they could include to do a Horford for Drew Holiday. I think yeah, I think off, is actually- off the top of my head, I would say Shake, Feibel, and a future first, like not even this year's first, like because I don't know why they would right. want number 21. I mean, I'm not even sure that's enough. And then would you give up like all like all four of those things, like Feibel, Shake, this, this year's first, and then a 2022 first? Like are you doing that for Drew to get off Horford's money and get Drew Holiday? I, I think I probably would, but like that's an awful – like I, you could probably talk yourself into well, none of them are high level assets, but given how important Thibault and like Shake Milton are, and how much you need cost controlled assets, that's a that's a hell of a price to pay. I'd still probably do it though. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, but I still think like the Pelicans, if they're shopping Drew, they can get more than that. Like I don't think also fair. Have to. Yeah, so I I come back to more rather than go for a bigger name, try to break Horford up into smaller pieces if you can. So one of the ideas I've kicked around is something like. Bring back JJ Redick, who was just on Matt Barnes's podcast and said they effed up by trading him, which fair. Uh, Darius Miller, who is coming off, I believe the Achilles didn't play at all last year, so it's kind of just like I don't think the Pelicans are probably going to be that married to him. Right. And then uh, Nico Melli for Horford and whatever you know, twenty one, and and some combination of future picks or you know some of the seconds that they have or. Like, I, again, I don't know what that sweetener is. Um, and that's I, ultimately, that's where I keep coming back to with all of these Horford and Tobias trade ideas. Because, like, yes, if they could trade Al Horford for Buddy Heald straight up, go for it. Like, totally. It's not going to uh, happen, but go yeah. for it. Um, but, you know, I, I keep wondering, like, as you said, with the, the true stuff, like, are you trading so much that you aren't drastically improving either the short-term or the, or the long-term outlook. And if so, like, I, I wouldn't make a Horford trade like for Nicholas Batum just for cap relief because cap relief isn't going to help the Sixers at all. Like, they won't pay the luxury tax. I don't care. Bleed Josh Harris dry. Do not care at all. Um, you that's know, what that's I was actually about make- to ask you because it's like, would you do Al Horford and let's even say it's a smaller sweetener uh, for Andre Drummond, like from Cleveland, just to get off his money at the end of next year, look, then Drummond's just backing up Joel Embiid and then getting the shit kicked out of him in, in practice by Joel Embiid <laughs> too. Uh, but I mean, it makes sense. Like from a, like just a far removed perspective, like 
Uh, that's now we're thinking about the team's finances, but it also doesn't really even matter because like there is that that's not even really going to be the difference if you keep Josh Richardson. Um, but yeah. even if you don't like that, that may not even be the difference between unlocking the non-tax payers mid-level down the line. So you're not really saddling yourself with any additional assets by making that move. You're just saving Josh Harris money. Right, exactly. And I don't care about that at all. It's less money he can donate to <laughs> to the Republican Party. So it's actually for the best. That, that's the only benefit to Al Horford's contract these days. So, I mean, that's ultimately where it lands. It's like, it, I'm okay with, you know, of course they should be shopping these guys around and seeing what they can get. But I wouldn't want to give up a ton of assets, especially just for cap relief, if it's going to make you worse both next year. And then also, like, as bad as Al Horford was next to Embiid and Simmons, you know, you pencil in 20 games, probably that Embiid's going to miss. Horford does have a role there in the 15 minutes that Embiid doesn't play per night during the regular season. Like he and Ben coexisted somewhat well together. And, you know, and, and Horford had a down year shooting. I think if he, you know, if he, if he, unlike everyone else who comes to Philly in recent years, like regresses positively to the mean and actually starts shooting better, especially on catch and shoots next year than he did this year. Like, I'm not saying he's going to provide the positive value on the contract, but it's not like he is a complete zero of a player. So, you know, I, I think they do need to be careful. And ultimately it would not surprise me if they run this back and the, you know, they say, you know, last year going into the season, we were su- heavily projected to be a title contender. Uh-huh. Now we've added someone, you know, whoever with the mid-level we've added these draft picks All of these guys have another year under their belts. They have more chemistry together. We have a new coach. Let's see what happens. And then if, you know, if it all goes to hell in those first few months, like that's what the trade deadline's for. Okay. We, we tried it. (laughs) It didn't work. Then we can re-explore deals then. And, you know, you've paid four months of Al Horford's contract. So maybe it's slightly more enticing, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I, (laughs) I keep, being uh, fearful that it will be exiled from Sixers Twitter again for saying like, I I wouldn't be shocked if they run it back, but I, I really, I wouldn't I w- one year too late, but it's tough. So to, it I wouldn't be shocked either. And it's t- without knowing what the like market to like grease the wheels of a trade for Al Horford is just now more than ever, because his contract seems steeper in what we expect to be just a more constrained cap climate. And so like I, he actually, I think he could help, you know, the, the logistics aside, like I actually think he's a good fit in Sacramento where you don't mm-hmm. really know what's happening with Marvin Bagley and he's just, what is he going to give you on defense? Um, Rashawn Holmes is good, still not a great defender. And then also Horford gives you range that Holmes doesn't have. Even Marvin Bagley like shot pretty well from the outside towards the end of his rookie year, but not, not proven either. So I like him there, but it's just a matter of like, you know, what do you have to include to get a Buddy Heald or even a Harrison Barnes in that situation? Um, the Pelicans mm-hmm. were another team that sprung to mind. He's actually a great fit if he's healthy alongside Zion Williamson. Uh, but what do you have to, you know, you're not getting any huge assets back in that deal. But again, what do you have to give up as the the sweeteners there? And then the other team that kind of stood out for me, uh, it would be like if they can get assets for the future, but then it's also someone who helps them immediately. Like what would it take to get Rudy Gay and Patty Mills from mm. uh, San Antonio? Like that, those two contracts fit perfectly into what Al Horford is owed. It's like, what mm. do you need to give up if the Spurs are willing to, if they are thinking more long-term or even if they just want to go a little bit bigger up front, they don't want to pay Jakob Pertle and they're intrigued by Aldridge Horford for a year with DeMar DeRozan. That would be like the most 
depressing three star core like, that we've seen <laughs> in a long time. But um, like, what do you have to include to get that? That might be another avenue to consider. But I just don't know. Like, I, I we yeah. could say two sweeteners, like a pick and Matisse Thibault, but like, I don't even know if that's enough. Right. And that's the problem. I think if it was just, if Horford was on an expiring contract, it'd be a lot easier to conceptualize because we kind of know the going rate for, you know, you could get a first round pick for a guy on like a $15 million contract, like buy, you know, rent 15 million of cap space and get a first round pick. But like, what do you do for 80 million of cap space right. spread over three years <laughs> in a pandemic? I, I don't know. The only other one is like, if Boston really wants Al Horford back, maybe they got shook by Bam Adebayo. Do some variation of Horford for Gordon Hayward. Plus, you know, it's Boston and Philly, so they'll take at least like three picks from the Sixers and rake them over the coals for the third consecutive trade. But, you know, that's that's another one where it's like, if Boston was very desperate, I'll put it that way, but I, I don't see that happening at all. I think that's probably even less realistic than the proposed Buddy Healed, all of the Buddy Healed uh, trade variations. The other thing that I thought about is like, what do you, could they go for a smaller swing where it's like, if you pair Zaire Smith and Mike Scott's contracts together with mm. other assets, you could take back a 10.2, 10.3, $10.4 million play, whatever it is. If you went, if you could figure out a way to get a three for one done, if you threw Deckley Fiebel into that equation, like you're looking at being able to get a player who makes almost $14 million back. Is that something that they could or should consider? Or is it at that point, like, well, then they're obliterating their death, but at the same time, it's like, well, how important is Mike Scott and Zaire Smith to right. what they're doing right now anyway? Like Fiebel, I get, but if you're like, if he's the asset that's getting you back, I don't even know what player it is. Like this might be a package that only gets you, uh, if it's Scott and Smith and then something else, like maybe you can get Thomas Adaransky, which I think helps, but it's like, does that do it for you? Like, is that like, right. oh, cool. Like, that's a good move. If it was like Scott Smith and 21, like, bring on Derek Rose, ready for those people. Oh, my God. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely worth exploring. I cannot express enough how bad Mike Scott was this past year. And again, I love him. I know Sixers Twitter loves him. He was probably their worst rotation player. I've 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 the room exception well spent then I'm like, I'm like, I'm like what? Uh, the logic there is just so bizarre uh, the the last thing I wanted to ask you is just an open forum what's the most undercovered aspect of this team in your opinion or what's just something that I didn't ask you that you want to talk about yeah it's a, a fair question I think I don't know how covered this is from a national standpoint. I think Sixers Twitter does a fantastic job of this, but the front office is just still such an open question. Um, you know, we've, we've been hearing nonstop leaks over the past few weeks about like big changes are coming. And, you know, Alex Rucker, one of the EVPs is apparently going to lose his job, but he still hasn't actually left, lost his job. Right. And the spin that like he was calling a lot of the shots like this past season, like that was weird. Like at that point it's like, okay, like Elton Brand's agent is like doing some heavy lifting over there. Yeah. Like I I think fundamentally they really screwed up in 2018 when Colangelo resigned, like bringing in, Elton Brand, who, you know, is apparently very well respected around the league, but like a first time GM, very inexperienced. They kept all of Colangelo's cronies still on board. 
And these guys are the ones responsible for taking what they had in 2018, which was a very promising core with a lot of flexibility. And we are here right now where we're talking about like, how much will you have to include to get off of one of these contracts? It seems kind of absurd to me that any of them are still employed and you know, by, <laughs> by all indications, Elton Brand's going to keep his job. The rest of the front office is still up for evaluation. So wasn't there talk you know, I, of like an extension for Elton Brand recently or something? Am I imagining that I saw that rumor? He wanted one. Oh, he okay. approached Sixers management and wanted one. Um, uh, you know, I can, I, I appreciate the boldness, the daring. Yeah. In that <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I only saddled with you with two of the worst five contracts of the NBA. But <laughs> give me a three-year extension that I could dig my way out of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just the overall, like, what the hell is going on in the front office, again, very well covered locally. I think it probably deserves more attention nationally. I, Doris actually went in on it during game four of the Sixers Celtics series, and everyone on Sixers Twitter was like, yes, Queen, thank you. <laughs> Um, so you know it's bad when Doris we'll Burke is going in on live uh, on national TV about it. Like I've heard her go in on podcasts, but like when she goes in during broadcast, it's like it's because you screwed up badly. Yeah, like that badly. Yikes! Uh, so that's one, and the other is as much as I love Embiid, his shot selection at times. I think that is one thing that Doc really needs to get on him about. Um, just you know, it's not even. You know, he of course he's going to post up a ton, and he's one of the only guys who can actually post up well. He'll, he'll turn it over when he gets double team. He's got to improve there, but like he also has a couple shots per game where it's like early in the shot clock, and he just it's like he gets he Jamal Crawford's it. Like, I was going to say like Russell Westbrook. Like it's there's like eighteen wow. seconds left on the shot clock, and he like pulls up for a long two, and you're like, w- why? Like what are you doing? If you just cut out the three or four worst shots from his diet every game and redistributed them to anyone else. I'd rather see Ben Simmons take four threes a game than Joel Embiid take some of these shots. So I think that is something to keep an eye on next year and see, you know, how, how doc distributes touch touches and shots. And like, if he could get that cut out of Embiid's um, shot diet, because again, it's like, he, I mean, it's a, the same thing with Russ, right? You take out the five worst shots he takes per game, and he's a totally different player. But because he takes those five shots a game, he is that polarizing. And B, I think, you know, is so physically opposing and so dominant. Draymond has even said he's like, you're bailing defenses out every time you take a shot like that. So the Sixers really need to get on him and be just like make him watch that Draymond clip over <laughs> and over again. It's like this is one of. A, you know, a three-time champion, one of the best defenders in the last five years, telling you, don't do this because you're bailing defenders out. Listen to him. Uh, that's spectacular. Uh, his turnover rate on post-ups this year, I think, was sub-12%, and it actually felt like in real time when you're watching it that it was, like, much higher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he has gotten better, I will say, every year in terms of his passing vision. And you can tell it, I mean, he because he knows. Like in the playoffs, he knows he's going to get double teamed on the on post-ups. And we saw it time and again in that Boston series. So it's a work in progress, but I think we have seen some incremental progress on that front. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that also is a major area of focus moving forward, at least, you know, especially because, again, it goes back to the Ben Simmons question. If, if Ben Simmons isn't going to shoot, 
you got to figure out where to put him on the court that, you know, they can't leave him wide open because then, like, whoever is guarding Ben Simmons is going to double-team Joel Embiid. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. Uh, if you guys are not following Brian on Twitter, remedy that immediately. Uh, you can find him at at B-T-O-P-O-R-E-K. He is a quality editor for Bleacher Report, co-host of the NBA pod, and he writes for Forbes Sports and Fansided. Again, Brian, thank you so much. It took too long to get you on here in the first place, but rest assured, if you're willing, I will be pestering you in the future. Very good. Uh, Happy to come on when uh, they trade Al Horford this offseason. (laughs) Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.